If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking a guest. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. One more week until Labor Day and back to school. I'm already getting a tummy ache. Here it's Scott Thompson! Good afternoon, it is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Great to have you aboard Hamilton today. Feel free to jump into the conversation. It is an all-request Friday edition of... Uh, you can also send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Love for you to be a part of it on this Friday, heading into the last weekend of the summer of 2022 before the Labor Day weekend. Ew, oh, man, where did that go? Uh, do you think the fact that we really haven't had a summer for the last couple of summers had anything to do with this? Uh, but anyway, get out and enjoy and play safe. Uh, it's going to be another pretty good weekend in and around the Hammer. All right, lots to tell you about, uh, including Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Your chance uh, to go to another great summer tradition. This on Labor Day, Spencer Smith Park and uh, the Giant Rib Fest. Uh, Spencer Smith Park uh, Rib Fest, uh, Canada's largest ribfest.com to find out more. We've got your chance to go and take Take the family and load them up with uh, ribs till they can't see straight. Uh, coming up after the 5 o'clock news with Hammerhead Trivia. Also, a reminder that uh, Winona Peach Festival going on this weekend. And uh, you'll see the CHML Street team out in front on Saturday and Sunday. And all you have to do is go up to them and mention the secret code word. It's a secret code word. And uh, they'll give you a Winona Peach uh, Festival prize package. That's Saturday and Sunday. The secret code word is actually three code words. So it makes it three times as difficult. Or maybe it doesn't. Good morning, Winona. That's the... Uh the code word. So go up and scream that in the ears of a CHML stream, uh, street team member. Not only will you wake them up, you might make them spill their timmies. And, uh, but either way, you get a Winona Peach uh, Festival prize pack while they last. Uh, happening this weekend. Another great summertime tradition. All right, we've got a jam-packed show for you. Hope you hang around for it. Love to uh, have you be a part of it, as we always do. Uh, things are wrapping up in, um, in uh, I guess, uh, sorry. <laughs> I've only got two eyes. How many things can I look at? Uh, things are wrapping up in Alberta uh, with the NATO chief and the prime minister. Uh, I might remember they were touring the Arctic yesterday and, uh, and none of it and, and looking at NORAD installations and such. We'll talk about that uh, coming up. Oh, we've also got a clip here. This is from Nicole Reese. Uh, from the Canadian press talking about uh, what has been going on over the last 24, 48 hours with the head of NATO being here and the Prime Minister. Experts have noted this is part of Canada's renewed focus on Arctic security in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent expansion of NATO. With Finland and Sweden becoming members, Russia will be the sole Arctic nation outside of the alliance. All right, there you have it uh, from the Canadian press. And uh, also, Finland and Sweden uh, trying to become part of NATO and already spend more per capita than Canada does. Uh, so, yeah, it's time that Canada starts to uh, step up on this front. Uh, what else we got going on? Uh, Moderna suing Pfizer over uh, patents with COVID-19 vaccine. 
Uh, can we be surprised? Well, yeah, I guess I am kind of surprised, but uh, we'll try to find out what's going on there. Also, uh, the FBI have released documents on Donald Trump and uh, the, the documents that they seized during the raid at Mar-a-Lago, and a lot of it is blacked out because a lot of it's top secret. <laughs> Which makes you ask the question, why does Donald Trump still have that stuff? So uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, gas prices down today, uh, but it's short-lived, uh, and they'll be creeping back up again. So uh, gas up and take advantage of that. All right, a jam-packed show coming up, including next, the mullet. Is it making a comeback? Is the mullet making a comeback? Did it ever go away in some people's lives? Uh, an 11-year-old boy in Quebec was one in the uh, one of the top 10 in a mullet competition, which was is quite big in the United States. And you know, let's talk about the mullet. And we're going to bring in a uh, a barber to chat about this. But you know, I think the mullet goes back to the mid 70s when it was called the shag. And, you know, bands like the Bay City Rollers had the shag, which was short on the top, long on the back. Now, is there a difference between the mullet and the shag of the 70s, mid-70s? We'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Well, the next break. Also, so if you need a haircut, line up, get in the, get in the chair. Uh, also, transit service coming between uh, on the weekend between Toronto and Niagara Falls. This is great for their tourism industry. We're going to talk to Caroline Mul- Mulrooney, Minister of Transportation, on that as well. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, any tourists that come into Toronto, if they can jump on a GO train and get down to Niagara Falls, uh, that would be a great convenience for them. Also, uh, because it's Friday, we're talking a little bit about entertainment. Britney Spears making a return to music by teaming up with Elton John uh, and an old, uh, a new old version of Hold Me Closer, Tiny Dancer. Not sure. Uh, well, of course it will do well. It's Elton John and Britney Spears. There were two huge names. Uh, an odd combination. We'll talk about that with Eric Elper uh, coming up a little later on. And remember yesterday we were talking about, um, I think we talked about it initially with Dub doing something on, on going gray or letting yourself go gray. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. Wendy's, which has the uh, caricature of the little girl, Wendy, with the red hair on its logo, have now turned that gray for, the I guess, the short term, uh, is jumping on. On these sort, uh, sorts of issues, uh, could this backfire on them? We're starting to hear the other side of, uh, of this idea resonating, so we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, this is something I've been talking about for a long time, and it wasn't that long ago where you would tip when you went to a restaurant somewhere between 10, 12, 15% was even pushing it. Uh, now, even, you know, prior to the pandemic, we've seen tipping go up to 20%. And now, as of, you know, a post-pandemic world and the hospitality industry suffering, some restaurants have increased tipping to up to 30%. Could this be working against them? Again, the pendulum swinging back. We'll talk about that all coming up in the first hour or so of Hamilton Today. I remember seeing... um uh, something on this and, and the, uh, it's apparently quite a big competition in the United States. And that is, uh, a mullet competition, especially with kids. Uh, and there's been a recent one in which a 11 year old boy from Quebec was in the top 10 
of the mullet competition. And then so we started thinking like, well, is the mullet making a comeback? I'm not sure the mullet's making a comeback, uh, although I guess for young people like this, you're 11 years old, of course it is. Uh, or is it in some cases the mullet has never left people? <laughs> it's been around for however. And was it always the mullet? Let's bring in Andrew Pohl, barber, architect, hair design, uh, located at 324 James Street North and is with us now. Andrew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, yes, absolutely. Thanks for having so, me. Tell us about Architect Hair Design. It's a pretty cool shop you got. Architect Hair Design. We're on James Street. Uh, yeah, man, it's a cool place. We've got beers. We do mullets semi-regularly. Um, we're just like a good little shop to hang out in a good area. Great part of Hamilton. Um, lots of stuff going on. We're gearing up, getting ready for uh, Super Crawl coming up here. And yeah, man, it's just been a good summer here so far. All right. So, uh, first of all, do we know the origins of the mullet? I mean, where did the mullet come from? I think the mullet probably came out of, uh, you know, necessity. You had guys that wanted to continue their rock and roll lifestyle. And then maybe one day, you know, someone got on them and said, hey, man, you've got to go get a job. And they were thinking, <laughs> uh, you know, okay, I don't want to cut all my hair off. But when I show up for this interview, the guy's just going to be looking at my face. So I might as well make the side short comb the top, you know, the, the business in the front party in the back mentality. You know, when you think about it, this would be perfect for today. Maybe it's making a comeback because it fits with the Zoom call. I mean, if you angle it just right, they'll never even know you got the party in the back. hundred uh, percent. You know, I never thought, because I'm old enough to remember the shag. Do you know what that okay. is, Andrew? Like the shag, I, I mean, like you remember like Bowie had one, Bay City Rollers, sort of mid-70s when music was very confused. Um, uh, you know, to me, that was sort of uh, the early mullet. But then I guess the mullet you're talking about is a bit more refined than that was, than the shag. Well, yeah, you have a couple different categories of mullets now, I think, as well. Um, you've got, uh, you know, like the fashion mullet where you try to, uh, you know, chop some cool texture in it, make it real nice. And then you just have the general old school, real dirty mullet, um, you know, make it shave the sides and just leave all the back as long and messy as possible. <laughs> so it depends on what type of look you're going for. You know, how professional do you want to make your mullet? Yeah, I, I guess, you know, you can have a refined mullet or a not so refined mullet, can't you? Uh, so <laughs> what's it like, Andrew? Do people come in and say, give me the mullet? Uh, do people come in and say, continue working on my mullet that I've had for a lifetime? Do you see a lot of these? I think the vast majority of people, uh, this would be a haha funny COVID thing. Although I did do an entire hockey team. Uh, that made the playoffs, high school kids, and uh, I guess the deal was every kid on the team had to have a mullet. Funny enough, most of them were, uh, you know, just doing it out of necessity and uh, not not too happy about it, but it was it was pretty funny. They all also had to get racing stripes down the side. So a bunch of kids, you know, 16, 17 years old, really care about looking good in the, the, the prime age where you really care about getting girls and stuff, and then everyone's just got these, Dirty mullets with racing stripes down the sides. So, yeah, you got to elaborate on this. So, this sounds like a hilarious time. So, they show up at your place with the whole hockey team, and you got to do them all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everyone booked uh, booked in pretty much all on the same day, and all the kids came in. Uh, <laughs> what was, <laughs> what was that like? Because one kid had gone to, uh, I don't know, somewhere else. His mullet didn't turn out quite the way he had wanted. Showed me a picture. <laughs> I didn't think it was uh, the best mullet either, and... Yeah, we just got them all looking right. Nice racing stripes, nice long in the back. 
Oh, that's hilarious. And what about the parents? What did they have to say about all this? Oh, you know, I think they were just, you know, kids will be kids. Let them do their thing. And especially if it's for something like a hockey team, um, you know, yeah. You know, I remember seeing a thing on social media one time, you know, like sort of the uh, the butch haircut that guys had that's really, really tight shaven, um, you know, really tight part, that sort of thing, that that was going to be the next mullet. Any prediction on that? Whew. You know, it's hard to say. It's always hard to say where exactly the hair trends are going to go and why people are going to do a particular hairstyle. I mean, who knows? We could see something that we haven't seen in a long time come back. Maybe it's the flat top. I think time will have to tell. <laughs> so how difficult for it is to you or those in your industry when someone comes in and it's like they're on the cutting edge, no pun intended, and they're always looking for the latest thing? I mean, especially if it's something you may not have done before. I think uh, today, fortunately, it's almost a little bit easier with uh, social media. You know, yeah. if you can just scroll through your Instagram feed. I mean, there's just every possible weird type of haircut you can imagine. And usually the type of person that's coming in, they want something cool. They want something creative. They're pretty open to working with you. And honestly, you just kind of wing it. You put your own little creative spin on it. You work with them, do a little bit here, a little bit there until it's just how they want it. So, Andrew, what's the future of the mullet? Is this just like another passing fad? Is it something like it will always be there now in, in, in some segment of the population? Is it making a comeback? What are your thoughts here? I think you're going to see a little bit of both. I think a lot of people, it's, uh, you know, it's the passing fad. And I think uh, once, once the dust clears, you'll have the one true, the true mullet uh, havers that have probably had them since the 80s still rocking it it's their only haircut and it's probably their way of life andrew paul with his barber architect hair design it's located at 324 james street north uh seeing a bit of them coming back and you know some that never left andrew uh thanks so much for the time be well good luck all right thank you you're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Caroline Mulrooney is with us minister of transportation good afternoon minister great to have you on the show Good afternoon. Great to be with you. So you and the Premier down in Niagara Falls today. What's going on? Obviously, this has to do with transportation and specifically GO trains. Yes, it does. Uh, well, our government is bringing back year-round weekend GO rail service between Union Station and Niagara Falls. So that's what we came to Niagara today to announce. It means uh, that uh, we will be providing... Go Rail service to Niagara 365 days a year. And what would this schedule be like on a daily, weekly basis? So the service will include two round trips each day on Saturdays and Sundays. Um, and it will begin uh, on October 15th. The details of the timing of the trains are still being determined. Um, and we certainly will provide that information to travelers ahead of, the, ahead of October 15th. So encourage people to go to the website, uh, and we will certainly make an announcement when those uh, when the, those details are available. But it is certainly two weekend uh, round trips each day. All right. So at this point, it is uh, it's concentrating on weekend round trip service. That's right. That's so, right. You know, we've seen across our Go network um, a return to regular pre-pandemic ridership levels, um, and so. People are exploring Ontario more and more and exploring Niagara. And so we want to make sure that t travelers have a reliable, convenient, uh, and easy way to get there. So this is primarily about tourism then? 
It is. Um, you know, weekend service is key to drawing visitors to Niagara. Niagara is a is a tour is a top tourist destination not only in Ontario but in Canada and I think around the world. It has a 1.8 billion dollar tourism industry, and so we want to provide the transportation connections that are necessary to sustain it, but also strengthen it as more and more people come to uh, come to explore it. But yes, we you know as you know we all also offer. Uh, service to Niagara on weekdays. So this is, as I said, 365 days a year, people can get to Niagara to explore. This is a great idea. We just came back from a vacation in Europe where you would often just, uh, you know, go into a major city and then take the many railway hubs off of that. Uh, Niagara Falls must be ecstatic over this. Yes, well, the mayor was here and the chair of the region was here and, of course, our local MPPs and ministers. We, you know, this is something that... um, you know, it signals that we're moving forward with uh, the pre-pandemic activities, um, and uh, and it's going to draw more and more people to this region. But as you said, you know, in other communities, people are used to using rail. We need to make sure that we have the services that people can use because we know that it's an easier way to get around. Um, you know, we have a balanced transportation plan. We're investing in roads and bridges, uh, but we also are investing even more in transit because it's cleaner and greener, but it's also in many ways more convenient for people. Uh, Many have been talking about the line between, say, Toronto and Niagara Falls, specifically here in Hamilton, uh, Grimsby, and all the way through there. Uh, Is there much demand at this point for even uh, uh, business travel back and forth? How is that growing? Well, ridership is coming back, especially on this line, as you said. Um, And we are eventually planning to work to deliver two-way all-day go service, 15 minutes across core segments of the network, and that includes this area. Um, you know, so we are working towards that. Um, as people are returning to work in the fall, uh, commuters will have, they already have uh, service available to them, but we want over the next few years to be able to deliver even more for, for commuters. Have you got much demand, much response from tourism associations, et cetera, asking for this service? Absolutely. Um, and uh, I actually recently met with the Tourism Industry Association, um, and GoRail is a big part of, uh, of their ask in terms of sustaining and strengthening our tourism industry. And Niagara is a tourism hub, but I can tell you that your the local uh, provincial uh, MPPs have been advocating for it, the region has been advocating for it, and I think that's why they were also... So happy to be here with us uh, and the Premier for our announcement today. So how much of this or how is this advertised differently, uh, Minister, in regard to uh, a tourist? So obviously a tourist who, say, may land in Toronto and then decides to jump on a train and take a day trip here, a day trip there, whatever. Uh, how, do you, how do you get this message across, that this service is available? Well, in my, my experience, when the Premier shows up and makes the announcement instead of just the Minister, um, it gets broadcast. Uh, in, a, in a pretty broad way, and, um, and so I'm hoping that this news, and thank you to you for covering it today, will let people know that this service is available. Uh, but, you know, in the Ministry of Transportation, we are working to make sure that, um, that this information can be accessed easily by Ontarians, but also people who are traveling to Ontario. Um, so it, it is, as you pointed out, it's not just for, 
for Ontarians, but it's for our tourists as well. And so, uh, you know, so we are, it's our job to make sure that this information is available to them. And we're always looking for new ways, new forms of media uh, to, to get out to them. What does this do for Niagara Falls? Obviously, you're not the mayor, but setting them up for the future and future development and planning and such. Well, you know, the mayor was here today and he was ecstatic about this announcement. Um, I think that he's been looking for this service to come on because he's been hearing from people that they want to be able to get to Niagara in a more convenient way. So the demand is already here. But, um, you know, I know that Niagara and Niagara Falls have plans for even more uh, growth uh, within their tourism industry. And, you know, the role of our transportation network is to get people where they want to go safely and efficiently. And so as the tourism industry and the demand for that grows in this region, the Ministry of Transportation, our government will always be there to, uh, to listen to what they need uh, and develop those transportation solutions for them. And how can riders find out about this service? When will we learn more about schedules, that sort of thing? So schedules are available at gotransit.com. Um, and, um, and we will certainly, once the schedule has been finalized by Metrolinx, we'll be putting that out on our different social media channels. All right, Caroline Maroney with us, Minister of Transportation in Niagara Falls, along with the Premier today, talking about expanded GO train service to that area. Minister, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Have a great day. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, to talk about the song we have just heard and uh, what it does for both of these artists, let's bring in Eric Elper, publicist, music commentator. He's with us now. Eric, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Everything is great. Who is this guy, Elton John, that you speak of? <laughs> Isn't it so great when Britney Spears can put the spotlight on unknown talent for her it, first time back in so many years? It, you know, I, I don't know where to start with this. First of all, how did it happen? How did this all come together? Any idea? Yeah, well, last year, um, Elton John released an amazing remix, a kind of, of a mashup of, of other songs with uh, Dua Lipa. And uh, the song was called Cold Heart, and it had his hits, Rocket Man, Sacrifice, Kiss the Bride, and mm-hmm. Where's the Shura. And so this duet was really done in the studio for the summertime. It's an upbeat song, um, mixed a whole bunch of songs together, and it was... Elton John's biggest hit in 35 years. It's still in the top 10 on iTunes. Um, so every year, Elton John now wants to kind of do something like this, where he picks old songs, mashes them all up together, and gets somebody that you would never think of to do a duet. And it was, in fact, Elton John's husband um, and the Canadian, um, uh, David Furnish, who said, you know, we should get Britney Spears to do this. It's been a while since her last album. She's been free for just under a year. Let's call her and ask. So they were actually supposed to be recording the song together in the studio, but she went off and got married. Um, and uh, so they did it in separate studios. But it sounds amazing. It sounds exactly what we all need now that we're all allowed back outside again. And, you know, COVID still here, but reasonably over. It's amazing how Elton John continues to somehow reinvent himself and and somehow continually to monetize his music, which his catalog is already vast. You know what it is? It's um, when 
when you're Elton John and you've gone through 35, 40 years of drugs and drinking and you get sober for the last mm. 35 years of your life, um, you become a mentor if you play your cards right. George Michael, Robbie Williams, um, uh, Sam Bender, Louis Capaldi, Ed Sheeran have all built this amazing relationship, friendship with Elton John because Elton's been there. He knows what it's like to go through the ups and downs of the music industry several times over. And because of that, he still loves music. You know, every time that he comes to Toronto or Ottawa or places in Canada and around the world, he always makes time to go to a record store. And in fact, there's a couple of record stores in, in, in London, England, um, that have a standing order from Elton John to receive two copies of every single thing that they get. Hmm. sent to him automatically no matter what it is and so he still is a a loving music fan who loves to find out what is going on in the world today and i think that's what keeps him fresh after all these years yeah certainly keeps him relevant um who is this about is this about britney spears or elton john then i think if this happened um, oh, well, I mean, certainly it's about Britney Spears. You know, the, the fact that there were some people online that didn't know if Britney Spears could sing again. There was the idea that now that she's free from her, um, from, you know, her legal ramifications with her father and out to do whatever she wants to do now for the first time in decades. Um, you know, it, it's really all about her. And there was talk that maybe she wouldn't want to go back to music. Maybe she just wants to be a normal human being. Um, but, you know, this perhaps may just whet her appetite and, Get her the confidence knowing that it's number one after just 12 hours around the world on Spotify and on iTunes. (laughs) It gives her the self-confidence to go in and say, you know, I think I remember how to do this. This is great business, isn't it, for Elton John? Yeah. I mean, it not only is a great business for Elton John, it's really great ideas for everybody else that might be stuck with maybe not having a hit for the last Mm. 10 or 15 years. You know that in the marketing department at record labels, they are absolutely looking at this and saying, huh, who else do we have on our roster that we might be able to, to connect with, with somebody younger and popular and a really um, great producer um, and mash them all up together? You know, it, it's... I know older audiences may be like, well, it's kind of a cop-out. You know, it, mm-hmm. it it's not really a new song. It's all Elton John's hit. They're already a hit. But this generation of like 8 to 20-year-olds love this stuff. They yeah. love the fact that they get to hear 30 seconds of the best song because they're used to it. They're just doing nothing but watching YouTube videos anyway, which are like, you know, 15 seconds long. So this generation doesn't mind the fact that You can be an artist mixing this song with that song and that song. As long as all of the rights holders say okay and the royalties are distributed equally, anything goes right now. It's really exciting to be in the music industry where you might want to just take an old Rolling Stones song and have, you know, somebody brand new just kind of sing with Mick Jagger like he did back in 72. So as you said, now that she's free, what are we expecting now from Britney Spears in the next in the short term? Oh, I'm expecting her to return my phone call from from all those years ago and like maybe answer <laughs> answer that letter that I sent her back in 1987. Um, but failing that, um, I, I think it's just right now, 
Uh, I, I think if, if I'm working with her or, or managing her or just kind of in her closed circle, I think it's just making sure that mentally she's healthy, physically she's healthy. She gets to do exactly what she wants to do. She wants to, you know, have her honeymoon, hang out with her kids, spend money in the exact manner she wants to. And then I wouldn't be surprised if maybe December, January, we get to uh, finally find out about potentially a world tour or even a new album. I think that stuff is down the road. I think when you've been under something like a conservatorship for a decade, I think you've got some real issues that you have to at least address and get out of your mind before you're able to start to please other people. That's a valid point. Britney Spears making a return to music, teaming up with Elton John. Eric Alper with us, public system music commentator. Always fun, Eric. Thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks so much for having me. We have Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author, retail before, during, and after COVID-19, and is with us now. Bruce, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. A uh, busy day for you there, busy week for you this week, uh, talking about P- uh, Tim's Pizza and, and now this. Uh, we were chatting about this yesterday, and uh, first, I-, I guess, Dove was the first one out of the gate with uh, their hashtag and uh, Keep the Gray, I believe it is. Uh, Wendy's now taking the, the logo of the uh, Wendy caricature and adding gray to, the, uh, to that. Uh, many people, of course, are, are talking about it as a result of, but you say there could be some backlash with this. Explain. Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting situation. I mean, I, I think everyone in Canada or most people in Canada realize that, you know, if if these allegations are true that uh, Lisa Laflamme was ousted because of these reasons, that it's it's not a good thing, it's a very bad thing. What's in dispute is just whether these brands have permission to sort of tie themselves to that social movement, if you will. And what I mean by that, you know, I use the example of Pepsi, right? Pepsi a few years ago. Um, had a commercial, and uh, it was during the Black Lives Matter movement a few summers ago, and they had Kendall Jenner that, you know, mm-hmm. came out, two crowds were opposing each other, Kendall Jenner came out with a Pepsi and sort of solved everything. Yeah. And a lot of people thought that was a little trivial, right? They took a very serious issue and made it trivial. And I'm not suggesting Wendy's is trying to do that, but I, I just, you know, sometimes I guess I'm close to it, but I see brands desperately trying to get likes, desperately trying to be relevant. And, you know, I just push back sometimes and I say, well, do they really have the permission to do so? Maybe Dove does because Dove has given money to women's uh, charities or women's movements in the past. But, you know, Wendy's doing this. It's just a, it's just a, it just irked me a little bit as saying, OK, you know, this is cool. But but are you perfect? Like, have you done anything wrong? Because what if someone comes out and says, hey, you know, I worked at a restaurant and got let go because I was because I was older. Right. So just kind of, uh, you know, I wanted to argue that point of it. Do you, uh, is it important when you do this that you separate yourself from, uh, you know, between the cause and the actual case or the story that we're using? And in this example, it's CTV and Lisa LaFlemme. Do you have to be very careful that you distance yourself from the case and then sort of jump on the cause without, because if the case goes one way, that can change the whole narrative. Exactly. And that's the issue, right, with these brands is that, you know, what if, what if other things start to come out in the media? And, and, and makes Canadians think a little differently about the story, then as a brand, you've already sort of played your hand. You've already moved on one side. You can't move back. You know, once you get out there, you can't take it back, right? So it just, my, my argument was that it's a higher risk zone. I'm not saying that, you know, by supporting this, it's bad. But what I'm saying is mm-hmm. that it's higher risk for brands. Yeah, because there's usually two sides of a story, and does this look like you're taking one or the other? 
Yeah, and and in fairness, we don't have all the evidence yet, right? And we may never have all the evidence, right? So, so can um, you? Let me ask you this, Bruce. Can you yeah. take? Can you take the issue of ageism, separate it from this case, and run that as a campaign at the same time, or does it just look like you're piggybacking? Well, I think certainly it looks like you're piggybacking, right? You know, it's not a coincidence that these campaigns start. Yeah. So, um, although ageism is a great campaign, it does look a little interesting that the timing is, you know, as what it is. How long do you do this? Like, for example, the Wendy's with the hair. When does it go back to normal, and does that become an issue? Well, that's a great question, right? That's a great question. Now that they've waited in this, you know, do they hold it like this for a week? Do they wait until we all find out what really happened to Lisa, you know? Um, when they switch it back, will people be angry with Wendy's and say, why don't you leave it like this, you know? So there's all kinds of discussions. Once you wait in the pool here, um, you got to really think it through because it might be tough to get out of the pool again. I'm watching CTV News last night. I know you're not a media person, but you certainly know this uh, know this story. Um, I'm watching CTV News last night, and they're covering this story about uh, Wendy's and about Dove and such, and, and obviously pointed to the story of their former anchor as the reason for it. What are your thoughts on that? I think they have to. I think I think Bell has to. CTV has to. They're a journalist organization. And the day that you know um, a newsroom stops reporting on things because of their ownership, that's the day we've all lost democracy, right? Mm. Bruce Winder with us, retail analyst and author. Retail before, during, and after COVID nineteen is the book talking about the fallout if you jump on political campaigns as a uh, as a commercial business. Bruce, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye bye now. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We all remember during the uh, global pandemic, the hospitality industry just nailed it, as many industries were. And and certainly, um, you, you know, it became obvious after a few months that uh, life was not going to go back to the normal that we uh, once remember. And even now we're in some sort of uh, variation of. So, um you know, when when finally the gates were opened and the barn doors and we were allowed to run out and, and, and through the daisies again, a lot of us went to our favorite restaurants and all of a sudden we were uh, greeted with the obvious, as we're seeing everywhere, with inflation, prices going up, and even tipflation, the amount that you give as a tip. I remember talking about this long before the um, the global pandemic. And it, it seems in the last uh, few years, tipping has gone through the roof. Um, uh, I remember when it was 10%, then it went to 12 then it went to 15 and And again, this is a percentage of whatever your bill is. So your bill goes up every year. Why would tips have to as well? So uh, obviously now there's been a little blowback on this. If some, as some restaurants are actually asking for tips up to 30%, you know, when they hand you the machine and you say, well, you got 10, 15, 20, maybe 22, 20. Now they're like, they're starting a lot higher and including up to 30%. How do you feel about that? Let's bring in James Rylett, Vice President, Central Canada Restaurants Canada, and is with us now. James, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me, Scott. What are your thoughts on the whole tipping thing? Because some restaurants have gone the other way, increased their prices, and just you know provided a sustainable wage for their workers. I don't know if that works or not. But, but how did we uh, talk a little bit of how the tip has progressed over the years? Yeah, as you said earlier, we've seen over the years it's it's been slowly creeping up. I think uh, 
the big news here is it's, there's been a jump um, rather than just a progression. Um, and I, we, we think that that's because people feel um, bad for the uh, employees yeah. that have uh, gone through a, a couple years. So um, where that will go from here, uh, it's anybody's guess. I don't think it'll go down too much, but it might level out a bit. And what about the options? Uh, at what point do people get ticked off by this? Because at the end, the tip is a gratuity, and it's up to you what you pay. Uh, you know, some people, when they get that, uh, you know, when they get the, the bank machine thing in front of them, the whatever you call it, and and all of a sudden they don't have, or they have to select another and put their own uh, amount in, that kind of sets them back a bit. It could this backfire. Yeah, it's true, and it's like anything you do in a restaurant. If you uh, uh, you have to be careful. Um, a lot of people had set it higher just because that's what uh, that's what customers were doing anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But it is it is a delicate balance. You uh, you don't want to tick off people, but you also want to make it as easy as possible. You know, I will point out twelve uh, percent of uh, of people in our survey were tipping over twenty five percent anyway. So. It's it's not like it wasn't used, but uh, you know it, it is something that restaurateurs have to be aware of. They don't want to be seen to be uh, pushing uh, pushing customers and giving a bad t- taste in their mouth. Uh, obviously, this was going on long before the global pandemic, and things were starting to creep up, creep up, creep up, creep up. And then, as you said, uh, many you know felt. Uh, felt bad for hospitality and gave more i know there's situations when we've done that as well um but but this was going on long before the pandemic uh obviously it's exacerbated the issue but uh, you know like 30 percent that's one third the bill yeah it's uh it's not nothing and, and i think even restaurants uh are, are looking at it and saying um you know we're we're giving up a large portion of the bill and then when people Look at what they spent uh, either that night or the next day, and 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 wonder uh, if if it had gone up too high. So they're very cognizant of that. Um, as you as you mentioned as well, there is a a movement uh, whether you get rid of tipping altogether and and bring in a uh, um, higher higher costs uh, on menu prices as well as higher. Uh, um, uh, salaries for restaurant uh, workers, but you know that's that's something slow and coming. And like I always say, it's if restaurant uh, um, patrons want to see something like that, they'll patronize the the companies that are doing that. And at the end of the day, most waiters or waitresses that I know, man, they hustle for the tips, so they don't want that taken away from them because they can make a lot of money. Yeah, that's true. That's that's been the other thing uh, what has been slowing people. Um, Moving to a non-tip model, it's uh, it's hard hard enough to get staff right now as it is, yeah. and then most staff uh, want like the model that they're in, and they like uh, having the uh, having the extra income. They like uh, being able to control their extra income, and uh, it's you know there's a lot of changes that are coming in the industry. We're not sure where it'll be, but uh, um, you know things things will react to what customers and uh, and uh, employees want. We're talking about tipping with James Rylett, Vice President of uh, Restaurants Canada, Canada Central, uh, Central Canada, rather. Um, do you get the feeling that Canada is more aggressive in this department than other countries? It seems if you travel around, uh, many places aren't getting 20%, let alone 30%. Uh, is this a Canadian thing? 
Uh, I would say it's a, probably a North American thing. It's, it seems from the numbers we've seen is it's similar in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you look at some European places that allow tipping or that have tipping as a cultural thing, it's, it doesn't seem as high. Uh, you have places like Australia that uh, probably about 25 years ago just made the conscious effort to get rid of tipping and, uh, and it's just not seen there anymore. And um, like I said, it's a cultural thing, and these things grow uh, naturally. Um, and without a, a, a definitive uh, attempt to change it, uh, it, it would be hard to turn the ship around. Why not 50% then? You know, it's not unheard of. Uh, you know, if, if people feel they have a lot of money or have the money to uh, recognize that, it's uh, I've I've heard of op- uh, happening uh, that a fifty percent tip is left. Um, you know, it's I don't know where it's going to go, but uh, we'll just let the uh, let it move the way it wants to go. It's, so it's not uh, it's not the operators that are are, uh, are driving the ship. It's the uh, it's the customers. Good point. Uh, any idea what the average tip is in a Canadian restaurant, James? Uh, the average tip is about, uh, sorry, I'm just taking my things. It's about uh, 18%. 18%, that seems right. A little yeah. higher in Ontario. Ontario's up at 19%, but uh, in general, it's 17.8%. All right, James Rylett with us, Vice President, Central Canada, Restaurants Canada, talking about tipping. Uh, some restaurants have increased the option up to 30%, and there's been some blowback. Uh, James, thanks for the time. As always, be well. You too. Thanks a lot. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We were talking earlier, and I'm sure you're well aware of uh, the situation with uh, Donald Trump's uh, Florida estate uh, being raided by the FBI. Uh, then the fun ensued, and now the affidavit that was used to justify the search of Mar-a-Lago, uh, which has been heavily redacted, has been released. What does this all mean? What has been released? Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He's with us now. Thanks, Reggie, as always. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. So what exactly has been released? What do we know here? So, look, very little was released uh, when it comes to the affidavits, and the Department of Justice says the reasoning behind that is because they do not want to do anything that's going to get in the way with their investigation, nor do they want to put any uh, any federal agents or witnesses into harm's way. But ultimately, what we saw from this affidavit uh, shows that there was grave concern for national security uh, across the United States uh, that really is highlighted with this year-long effort from National Archives and the DOJ to retrieve these documents uh, from Mar-a-Lago. And I think one of the most, um, you know, one of the most stark moments of, of reading through these, you know, 38 and 48 and 50 pages that we saw today was that uh, FBI agents said that during, uh, you know, a rifle through some of the documents that they had received from the, from the Trump team earlier in the year, uh, they included 184 or on the approach to 200 classified documents, some of them considered top secret, some of them considered so secret that they can't be shared with foreign nationals, and all of this was in arm's reach of the public at a private club. So uh, is the, the fact that so much of this is redacted, is that because there is an ongoing investigation or is that because the information is just top secret? 
Well, it's a combination of two. There's information that they obviously don't want to release to the public because, again, mm-hmm. uh, it puts security at risk. But number two, uh, this is an ongoing investigation. It's a criminal investigation. And the fact that this affidavit was even released so early on before anybody's been charged really is unprecedented. But from everything that we heard from DOJ and from the Attorney General with threats that have been made against federal agents over the last uh, several weeks, there was a real concern here that uh, that a name being released could potentially put that person in harm's way because Scott look there is reporting from within and around the Trump orbit the reason they wanted so much transparency the reason they wanted this affidavit put forward is because it might show who squealed who went and and talked Mm. to the feds to let them know about this Uh, and so there's concern about that so Donald Trump and his people have said since the beginning it's his own stuff there's nothing illegal going on here what does the release of this say about that Well, I mean, look, the president, when he is the president, does have the ability to declassify documents, but it has to go through a process because there is still a risk to security by declassifying the wrong thing. And there's information that can't leave secured space uh, in the U.S. Capitol. And we heard from the Trump team that, you know, at one point, FBI agents went down to Mar-a-Lago and asked them to put a padlock on a door to secure things. And it turns out that's not what agents had said. Agents said that they needed to do everything they could to keep the room fully secure and stop people from going in and out. So Trump is saying, look, I had the standing order to be allowed to have all of this declassified information. uh, And it's really being pushed back with this argument of you did not have a standing order. You did not have the ability to declassify this, but also you didn't have the ability to take this with you to Mar-a-Lago. And I think that is a potential real concern here for the Trump team, because again, this is a criminal investigation. And while former presidents have never been charged before, that doesn't mean that they can't be charged. Uh, how does this uh, change the discussion in the sense that what is happening next? What, do, what does everybody expect to happen with this moving forward? Because obviously he's going to make a carnival out of anything that happens. Absolutely he will, and so too are the Republicans who are already trying to rip apart DOJ for a lack of quote-unquote transparency here. But at the end of the day, uh, this is potentially going to become another toxic moment for Republicans to try and figure out whether or not they line up behind Donald Trump, whether or not they let him keep this vice grip uh, over their party, or whether they start to move on. Uh, and we have to wait to see. It's unclear how long this investigation is going to take. Does this you know, proceed far after the midterms? It's very likely that it might. But does does that potentially lead to charges against the former president uh, and get in the way of his potential run through 2024? There's a lot that can happen between now and then. And with this investigation really only two weeks in and still so much more to go, uh, you know, it, it's, un, it, it, it's unknown, you know, not only how the Republicans are going to deal with this, but how much of this Donald Trump is going to throw into the fan to see how he can shred it and kind of spread it around. Uh, Obviously, you know, Americans want to get to the bottom of this. They want the truth to be told. But are the Democrats at any point thinking, you know, how do you prosecute a person when every time you do something, for example, raid his house, it turns public opinion uh, in favor of him? Look, it, it is turning public opinion, at least when it comes to the Republicans in favor mm-hmm. of Donald Trump. His numbers are up from May uh, to where they are right now in August. But at the same time, Democrats are letting this play out in the court of public opinion, uh, and they're riding on their own highs right now. I mean, Joe Biden's approval rating is also up eight points over the last couple of months because of a number of wins on the Democratic side. So they're saying, look, Republicans, you've created your own mess by letting Donald Trump keep this control. 
we're going to run over on this side and potentially try to whittle away any of the gains that you thought you were going to make uh, in the midterms later this year. So Democrats are saying, look, you know, things might not have progressed to the point of charges against the former president when he was president. Who knows what's going to happen now? They simply want to let that firestorm continue off to one side and kind of run forward to say, look, we're the party that actually doesn't have any issues right now, at least that are kind of unfolding and snowballing as bad as the Republicans. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News. Watch Global tonight for more on all of this. As always, Reggie, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Happy Friday. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, over the last couple of days, we have seen the head of NATO touring Canada, including up in Nunavut and the NORAD system up there uh, earlier today in Alberta, along with the prime minister. Uh, Should we be doing more? Are we doing enough to protect and assert ourselves in our Arctic? Let's bring in retired Colonel Pierre LeBlanc, Arctic security consultants and a former commander of the Canadian forces in the Arctic and with us now. Pierre, Thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. So are we doing enough to protect and assert ourselves in our north, far north? Uh, Certainly not in my books, no. Uh, We have improved uh, significantly over the years, but there's still quite a lot to be done. The uh, north warning system, uh, as you may have heard, is deemed to be obsolete uh, at this point. And with the conflict uh, uh, between Russia and Ukraine, Uh, There is a significant uh, incentive, if you wish, for us to really improve our security and sovereignty in the Canadian Arctic. Obviously, when officials get together, there, there's, you know, in front of the camera, then there's behind the camera. How do you think the head of NATO viewed what we have in the north? Uh, They would probably be disappointed, uh, obviously, because the, the Canadian north is the sort of western flank of NATO uh, and is part of the Arctic. And our capability to do surveillance, uh, monitoring of uh, the Canadian Arctic, as well as the ability to intervene should something wrong be taking place is very limited. Obviously, we're seeing passageways that were once frozen now opening up. How does that change this discussion? That is actually one of my biggest concerns. The Northwest Passage, which are part of internal waters of Canada, meaning that those waters, the Canadian government has complete control over those waters. However, the international community does not recognize the Northwest Passage as internal waters to Canada. They deem it to be an international strait because it connects two oceans together, the uh, Atlantic Ocean, and the Arctic Ocean, which, according to their position, gives them the right of transit, not only on the surface of the Northwest Passage, but also on the air column above it, as well as submarines being able to transit the Northwest Passage in a submarine position. So this change in landscape is going to greatly affect uh, who is overseeing the Arctic, is it not? Generally speaking, yes. Uh, the Canadian government certainly deal, needs to do, to do a lot more in terms of surveillance of the Arctic. You know, it is our country, and it's a very beautiful part of our country. It's a fragile one, and it behooves us to really understand and know what's going on in our own backyard, and should something wrong be taking place, that we have the ability to counter those activities. Is this about defense or natural resources, or obviously a bit of both? 
It's it's all of the above, really. The I mean, there's a a national threat, nation to nation, obviously, and it's not only with Russia. We're also concerned with uh, China. Uh, China is becoming increasingly aggressive. Uh, North Korea is also another uh, part of the threat uh, to Canada because should any of those three nations fire missiles towards the USA or Canada, most of them will be transiting over the Arctic. So it's important that we have you know all the resources necessary to really understand what's taking place in the Canadian Arctic, so-called domain awareness, really understanding in detail what's going on above the, the Arctic, on the surface, as well as underwater. So what was accomplished with this visit uh, and with the Prime Minister and the head of NATO uh, to none of it? What's, what's accomplished? What's the objective here? My sense is that the Secretary General of NATO, by doing this visit, is impressing upon the government of Canada that it needs to do more for the surveillance and the protection of the Canadian and Arctic, which is part of the NATO uh, area of concern. This is not necessarily a pat on the back because I've been seeing in media, you know, that the the NATO is quite happy with what they've seen. Um, but they're not here for that reason, are they? I mean, is this a pat on the back or is this, hey, pull the pants up? No, I believe it's uh, pull your pants up. Um, what we see, obviously, in the media has a certain uh, color to it. But I think in the various discussions uh, that take place, uh, you know, in, in private, the concerns that uh, NATO would have that Canada is, is quite far from it, the 2% of GDP uh, resources uh, allocated to defense, uh, I'm sure they're concerned with that, uh, especially with the situation that uh, Russia has created. Uh, Canada always says it contributes in other ways. What does that mean? Does that does that hold water? It holds a little bit of water in a sense that Canada participates physically in many of the operations that NATO uh, has done in the past. Uh, one of them, uh, you know, being uh, our contribution in Afghanistan, uh, which is uh, part of a coalition uh, force as well as uh, a NATO uh, mission. So by physically being there, uh, that's a contribution in kind, if you wish. Uh, whereas, <clears throat> you know, 2% of GDP, some countries do meet that, but they actually don't deploy troops physically and put them at harm, as Canada does. Colonel Pierre LeBlanc, retired uh, Arctic security consultant and former commander of the Canadian forces in the Arctic, talking about uh, are we doing enough to protect and assert ourselves in Canada's north. Colonel, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. It's my pleasure. All right, lots of chatter about energy this week as uh, the German chancellor was in Canada and meeting with the prime minister. Uh, but rather than talking about liquid natural gas, which is really what Germany is 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 screaming for, as well as the rest of Europe, uh, talking about R and D and the future, which we all should be talking about. We all should be talking about research and development and and where this is all going. Uh, but something that not really uh, is 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 well, it's still pretty much on the drawing board, and that is a hydrogen a hydrogen facility out on the east coast. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and with us now, Dan. Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, and uh, thanks for having me this afternoon. 
So the German Chancellor comes in this week and uh, chats with uh, Justin Trudeau. They come away with this deal, this hydrogen uh, research and development deal in uh, on the East Coast. Did the German Chancellor leave Canada a happy person? Oh, I think he's happy because he uh, got uh, and twisted uh, Justin's arm, in, uh, the Prime Minister's arm, into uh, giving him uh, those uh, those turbines that he desperately needed. But I think this is more window dressing and... Uh, uh, a little bit of show, uh, last days of summer show as, uh, uh, you know, uh, Germany and uh, Europe will be plunged into uh, an uncertain future, uh, certainly one that has less energy than anything we've seen in modern times. Uh, and, uh, you know, walking away with what he desperately needed and he didn't get, a commitment to move natural gas now or some point down the road. You know, Scott, we've had many discussions about this Prime Minister and his hatred for oil and gas. Uh, but it's pretty clear now when you have mainstream media now piling on saying, uh, what a, what a, what a, what a move, uh, a loss of a golden opportunity. Uh, Canada is the solution to the world by any measure, including, uh, woke, trendy, uh, you know, uh, environmental, social and governance. We produce the best, cleanest energy in the world. No one comes near us. And that's, a, that's not a, that's not a statement of, you know, national pride. It's simply, uh, a, an established fact. And so when you have a prime minister turns around and says, well, we, need, well, we still need a business case for uh, you know, LNG, which yeah. of course is uh, compressed natural gas, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is this guy on? Seriously, I mean, Ira, I was going to ask you about that. I was going to ask you opportunities. I was going to ask you that uh, specifically, Dan. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. he actually came out and said there was no business case for liquid natural gas in Canada. Yet he's talking about, and again, good for them, research and development, hydrogen. Let's go. Uh, but yet he's talking about something that isn't even available yet. Uh, no business case because he destroyed it. And let me make it really clear to people. This is a guy who presided over the destruction of 16 of 17 projects. This is money on the table from international investors. We're not talking about, you know, fly-by-nighters and the types that are the green grifters walking around with these wonderful plans that we wind up paying for that don't produce anything in terms of, you know, uh, unreliable renewable energy. We're talking about billions of dollars that could have been invested in Canada towards a product of the future that now even the United Nations and, yes, the European Union has now had to say, yeah, it's the fuel of the future. That's natural gas. We have lots of it. This prime minister says there's no business case. Yeah, you wonder why? Because he damn well spiked the ability to create a, a business case. Not that he would know anything about business. The only thing he understands, unfortunately, is to go down this road of saying, you know, there's a tsunami coming. There is a significant energy crisis developing right now. And this guy is walking away saying, oh, we'll do some hydrogen. It might be around in 30 or 40 years. Listen, when I was a member of Parliament in the early 2000s, we put money into companies like Ballard Power and, uh, you know, the, the so-called uh, hydrogen highway 15, 20 years ago. It's all bunk. It won't work. It, to create hydrogen, apart from the fact that most of it, and I'm going to say 90% of it has to be either done through coal, oil, or natural gas, not renewables. Uh, mm. Aside from that, I mean, this is something that requires three times the amount of energy to produce one unit of energy. And so the cost-benefit analysis has never been done. If he wants a business case, why the hell is he promoting something that doesn't work? Because I'll tell you why. you got a lot of dumb people who actually go along with this stuff and vote for him, not once, not twice, three times. So what he should have said is, hey, you like my hair today? Because that's probably more <laughs> cogent. And he probably has a better head of hair than he does his policy on hydrogen. 
So why does the German Chancellor not call him out on this? Why, and is it obvious because he's leveraging the turbines? If he does that, then yeah. then, then Justin won't send him the turbines. But why is Germany, have, yeah. and even not the rest of Europe, calling out the Prime Minister on this? Yeah, no, uh, that's, that's exactly what happened. It's the turbines. The turbines provide an immediate solution uh, to uh, mollify Russia. And Canada broke its word on sanctions and gave those turbines. So this is uh, Germany's way of buying a bit of cover, uh, but it also de- dem- you know demonstrates the uh, the idea, the, the bankruptcy of ideas in this government, in this particular woke government that doesn't understand um, that there's a massive case for LNG and that we have among the world's largest supplies of LNG. We walked away from it. Germany walks home empty-handed. The prime minister can say, well, the Germans love us so much that we give them back their turbines. Who cares about Russia and, and who cares about Ukraine? So, by the way, when I see on Twitter these liberals going around with little Ukrainian flags, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves because, frankly, that's a disgrace. You've turned your back on Ukraine and you've turned your back on Canadian energy, which could have been a solution, not just for Europe, but for the foreseeable future for the rest of the world. I remember for years, for decades, we've been talking about Germany and how it's on the forefront of research and development on renewables and such, and yet they're building pipelines to Russia and have canceled their nuclear program because of what happened in Japan, and we hear this week Japan is reigniting some of its nuclear facilities and reexamining their position on this because of the cost of energy. Where is Germany on this? They seem to be lost. At one time they were a leader, now they I'm not sure what they're doing. Well, you know, half a trillion dollars later, uh, they have nothing to show for it except destitution. Uh, they're going to see energy poverty on the score they have not seen, at least the western part of Germany since 1945, the eastern part, uh, going back to about 1988-89. Uh, this is back to the future for Germany because it made the wrong decision and it made it too quickly, too abruptly. And, uh, you know, doubling down on renewables. Uh, look, these are all aspirational. There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, let's do these things. But to say sure. we're going to displace oil and gas, we're going to displace nuclear, we're going to displace uh, you know, the uh, the ability for us to produce or hydroelectric and all these things, it's just madness. Uh, at the end of the day, Scott, I think it's unfortunate. But uh, while Germany is going to suffer immeasurably, Canadians aren't going to escape this. And uh, there's a cost for going along with what this woke leader and his allies and the NDP have been pushing and promoting. That is... Uh, energy starvation and energy poverty and uh, unfortunately uh it's going to take hardship for canadians to finally wake up uh from their woke haze uh is there anything canada can do now or the fact that we just have not been building pipelines or any sort of infrastructure for years and years and years uh it would take as long as what it would to build this hydrogen facility well, while you know our energy sector, uh, oil and gas, are putting more money in environmental programs than any other industry combined, um, you know it's pretty clear that uh, you know the the initiative is lost. But what we could be doing is, and what we are doing, and I think the, the you know the industry is doing is sending as much natural gas as they can to the United States, who, by the way, started their LNG projects five years after we started proposing them. They've got mo- half of them built. They're going to have the other half built probably in the next five years. Uh, while we sit there uh, and continue down this road of being uh, drawers of water, hewers of wood. And, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate because it was a political decision that uh, forced Canada to be, a, uh, to be a laggard, not a leader, when it has the proven technology and the proven resources more than any other country in this world. And a hoarder. Uh, Dan McTagg with us, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, talking about the crisis facing Europe as they head into winter uh, with low amounts of energy. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. And yourself, my friend. Thanks, Scott. Cheers. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Great song. I'm guessing, I'm getting it's not 24 hours till you're sedated. Like 24 minutes and you'll be sedated. You got it. 24 seconds. Uh, (laughs) You got a stopwatch? One, two, three, go. Uh, all right, so I, 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 you know, we're all so proud of the Nurse family and everything that they've done in sport and and putting Hamilton on the map and such. But how big a deal is it for Sarah Nurse to uh, get the nod, ending up on uh, NHL 23 video game? Saw the coverage of this uh, last night. How significant is this? Yeah, it's a big deal. It's, the, these games are uh, they're huge, and yes, it's it's. Uh, it's a big thing to get your face on there. And I, you know, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. I, I'm not, I'm assuming, and I haven't read it close enough. I'm assuming this means that within the game, you could choose female players as well. Yep. If they've got some, yeah, I, I don't yeah. know how many people will do that. I honestly don't, but I don't, I'm know sure there's, I'm sure there's lots of girls that will. I, I maybe, um, maybe. Uh, possibly <laughs> we'll no we'll find out I like it's a we, Bubba and I last night on my show we're talking about this and he was mentioning about how you know Brooke Henderson is doing really well uh, in golf this weekend and there's no Canadian live full coverage of everything and yeah. you know why not and one of the one of the questions and this is not a um, this is neither a criticism nor an accusation it's really legitimately a question because I haven't seen any TV numbers. There's been a lot more coverage, if you've noticed, flipping your TV channel lately. There's a lot more coverage of WNBA and women's soccer and all kinds of women's sports. Way more exposure. I haven't seen anything yet to see if that's translating into more eyeballs. And that's the part that's going to be really interesting. The argument has always been, if you put women's sports on the same way you put men's on, people will watch it just the same. I'm not buying that. I don't think it's ever going to be 50-50. I don't think the viewership is ever going to equal out. But I am really interested to see if more exposure, significantly more exposure, is translating into more people watching. And, Scott, you said young girls will use Sarah Nurse if her mm-hmm. uh, person, what do you call it, little emoji or whatever, is on the game. Yeah, You need more than that, though. This has always been the other argument. You. Women's sports is not going to ever reach the kind of levels that it should if the only people watching it are women. I mean, women yeah. watch the NFL, women watch the NBA, women watch the NHL. Mm-hmm, you also mm-hmm. need to appeal to men to watch this to bring those ratings up. So I'm really hoping that what you said at the beginning, that when you have this game, that it won't just be seven-year-old girls who are playing on their hockey local hockey team that do this that a bunch of guys say yeah i'm gonna give the girls team a go i'm gonna i'm gonna use them i'm gonna put sarah nurse in with my team that has Sidney crosby and whomever else and let's see what happens i i I just don't know if we're there yet i don't know i hope it is i don't know uh she must look back at her life though her career and think about how far she's come as a as a woman and once a little kid watching for some sort of mentor someone to follow someone to look up to now blammo there it is everywhere for all girls and boys to see sure no no and and this is i mean it's it's it can't hurt that's what i'm saying this is not there's no there's no definition or no explanation of what you asked at the beginning in which you say oh no this is a bad thing 
It's really yeah. bad that yeah. Sarah Nurse is getting this exposure. Of, no, of yeah. course it's a wonderful <laughs> yeah. thing. It, what, how, what impact it's going to have as far as tangible results, that's the thing we just don't know yet. But it can't be bad. There's no way it could possibly be a negative. What about the impact on her and her career and the impact on endorsements? Because that's all part of the formula as well. I was thinking about this yesterday or the day before, whatever we first heard about this. And I thought, you've got Darnell Nurse, who's making nine point something million dollars a year playing for the Edmonton Oilers. You've got Kia Nurse, who's on the WNBA as a star and doing TSN broadcasts. You've now got yeah. Sarah Nurse. Isaac Nurse, who is Sarah's brother, was the captain of the Hamilton Bulldogs. He won a championship. He was a great player. And you look at him and you go, boy, was he ever, did he ever miss? He didn't miss. He was a fantastic, (laughs) that's the level of this family's achievement right now, that you can be the captain of a team and have an amazing career and be an 11th round draft pick and make it. Nobody who's an 11th round draft pick ever makes it, let alone be the captain of your hometown team. And you look at him and you go, yeah, I don't know. That kid really didn't amount to much. Sure he did. It's just the rest of them. And you got dad who was a CFLer and mom who played yeah. college ball and aunts and uncles and nieces. And yeah. It, it's, so, yeah, Sarah Nurse really is, this is simply the next logical step that someone named Nurse is going to be the first person. It, it, it was inevitable that it was going to be a nurse because that's, this family is the all-time athletic overachieving family that um, – you know, that would get there. There's lots of others you could have picked. Uh, Scott, lots of other great female athletes, but it, it fits that it's Sarah Nurse. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a good weekend. You, you too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Liz for producing this week. Thanks to Diane and Dave in the newsroom. And as well, uh, Will on the board. We leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, Scott. I got uh, something for you. If you want to know about mullets, Just go back and watch Joe Dirt. It's about 25 years ago. It was, uh, the movie was made, but uh, if you want to check out mullets, that's how it started, and it continued on from there. Have a good day, buddy. Enjoy the show. Bye-bye. No, 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 no. The mullet was long here before Joe Dirt. Just saying sorry, bye. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.